Hey, Gary, welcome to the Craft Beer League podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Normally, what we start off with, Gary, is an origin story. Everyone has an origin story. And, and we were just wondering, how did you get into craft beer? How did you find it in your life? What led to that? Well, when I was uh, getting started, there was no such thing as craft beer. It was microbrewery beer or uh, homebrew. Uh, but even before that, my background was actually the restaurant business our, and our original business concept when we started Deschutes Brewery was a brew pub and that was all it was. Uh, my father had a history in the California wine industry during its kind of modern renaissance in the late 60s and early 70s. So we drew a lot of uh, comparisons with what had happened with wine at that time and what we observed happening with beer. The one difference being the ability to manufacture and retail within the same four walls of a pub. And the margins that could generate were attractive. We thought that, that the market was truly in its infancy and, and had a lot of run room in front of it. My father having develop vineyards and understanding what it took to plant and develop and grow grapevines and how long it took before you had production. And then the idea that with a brew pub, you could basically get paid largely in cash about 30 days after laying in your raw materials. He thought that sounded pretty good. So we developed a small retail business in a small, out-of-the-way, former timber town in Central Oregon. Now that little timber town has kind of blown up and become, uh, you know, one of the top lifestyle destinations in the country. Our business kind of followed the trends of craft beer over the last 32 years, has grown considerably as well. We, we have ridden the roller coaster. The latest version is the pandemic, but here we are. So you guys were there before it was actually a thing then. You were there in 1988 saying, hey, this might grow into something. If you looked around the landscape then, what else was going on? Was how big, to, to give the listener an idea, 1988, how, who else was out there doing this? Was it, was it anybody? Well, in Oregon, there weren't many. Uh, the Widmer brothers were doing their thing. Uh, Bridgeport Brewery, Portland Brewing, and Full Sail. I think the McMinimans only had one brew pub, maybe two at that time. They have 50 now. And that was about it. We were the first brewery in Bend. Bend was a town of about 15,000 people. Um, now there are 25 breweries in a town of 100,000 with maybe more than double that in the metropolitan area here. That'd be uh, a, in yeah. Oregon. So that's, that's a great place to live. Has, has, has grown uh, considerably, to say the least. Great place to live. At what point, so 88, you start doing this. When do, you, when do you start pursuing the canning, bottling, kind of the retail off-premise business? What year was that? Like a lot of businesses that start the way we did, and particularly, you know, not knowing what we didn't know, we weren't successful right away as a brew pub. But the food, or rather the, the beer was always good. And we had an opportunity to begin distribution. You know, if we could, you know, get kegs 
up to Portland, we could generate a little extra cash flow. We scrounged up some beat up, dented old used kegs. We sent a pallet of kegs on the back of a load of recycled cardboard to Portland. And, you know, we were in the manufacturing and wholesaling business and we had no idea. You know, that allowed us to grow. And all of a sudden we were generating cash flow. We were growing as a business. We were adding equipment. I paid off the bank, but started getting letters from the city because we were loading semi trucks in the middle of downtown city streets. We were running a forklift across the street between our building and another building we were using ostensibly as our warehouse, not knowing we weren't supposed to be doing any of that. But we realized that we couldn't shrink, that we had to grow. So we found a piece of property, built a larger brewery across town about a mile away. Our first bottling was uh, our holiday beer, Jubilee, was bottled in the fall of 1993. So that was about five years after we started the business. That was an exciting enterprise as well. Because again, common theme, we had no idea what we were doing. You know, we bought an old used Pepsi bottle filler, scrounged up some old used equipment that we had a, a, a guy was rehabbing for us we began to fill bottles as fast as we could and generated that business. And then we've been improving on it ever since. And now cans have been, been added. You know, we're continuing to try and figure out where the consumer wants us to go. At the very beginning, how did you learn to brew beer? Did you, did you read a book or how did that, if you, if you well, were the, really the restaurant business, how did that skill, was it just trial and error or? To be clear, I'm not a brewer, and yeah. I never was. And since that, since we started, I've been to brewing school. I brewed, I did, but that was never going to be my focus. I was running the business. Yeah. And uh, I've been very fortunate to hire some very, very talented brewers along the way. The first one, uh, when we started, was John Harris, who went on to 20-year career at Full Sail. He now owns and operates his own brew pub in uh, North Portland. Has had a had a very successful career and is and is doing well. Um, he taught me a lot about beer and you know good beer and what makes good beer and all of that. And so I've been you know lucky to be able to surround myself with with qualified, competent people. Uh, to manage the brewing part of the business. Now you're I call you're in Roanoke. Well, we have a tasting room in Roanoke. We bought yeah. property in Roanoke, and we're in the process of designing a brewery to go there. The market slowed down. The necessity for a second brewery dissipated, and so we continue to own that property. And maybe one day we will uh, revive that project. But for right now. Uh, we're waiting to see what the market wants us to do. So you started in 1988, 93, you started bottling, and now you're in, I believe, 23 states. Is that correct? About 23? No, we're probably 35 states right oh, okay. now. Okay, I think the website said 23. Okay, 35. Well, that's great. It was an old press release, I'm, I'm afraid. Oh, okay, 35 is impressive. I know there's some headwinds with COVID. What do you see that's encouraging out there? Or what's, what's interesting to you as far as the craft beer business right now? Head, headwinds is a bit of an understatement. COVID has devastated us. 
the industry, you know, we had, you know, we have two fairly large restaurants, uh, two tasting rooms, all are shuttered. You know, we laid off in, in March of this year, we laid off over 300 people. Yeah, COVID has been absolutely devastating to us and to our team. You know, we're optimistic for the future. We're always optimistic. Uh, but the sooner we can get open and get operating again, the better for everyone. What else do you see happening that is interesting to you out in the industry? Well, you know, the, the market has changed so much in the 32 years we've been here. You know, you talked about being very early on, not the first, but among the first. You know, at, at this point, or at least before the pandemic, there were 8,500 breweries operating in the United States. The barriers to entry in the industry have come down effectively to zero. Um, you know, you can go pro and, you know, fill out a form and, you know, pay a, a, a nominal fee. And with your homebrew kit in your garage, you can be a professional brewer. And a lot of people are doing that. And, you know, you can wheel a keg down to the tavern on the corner where you know the guy that, that owns it and they'll put one on for you, taking somebody else's beer off in the process. And that's a, that's a very interesting dynamic. It's, it's changed a lot about the way that we operate. You know, we used to really want to focus on, you know, up and down the street, those individual independent businesses. But now our focus is primarily on, you know, national accounts, the, the chain uh, grocery and convenience business and really trying to maximize the opportunity that we have to influence the marketplace on a much broader scale. Well, you know, the one thing, Gary, that, that I noticed that it's easy to start and anyone could do, as you say, as far as, you know, doing a home brew, wheeling a keg, but, but to be able to do it consistently always seems like, like the challenge. And that seems to be what differentiates the, you know, maybe an initial player to, to one that's going to have some sustainable future. I wish that was true, but what has happened with this proliferation of, of businesses is that the consumer has been conditioned to seek variety, to seek what they haven't had before, to try something new. And it used to be, I come in and say, oh yeah, I've got Deschutes or I've got Sierra Nevada, or I've, you know, I, I, I understand the brands that, that I want, but what ended up happening was that people would go in and say, okay, I've tried that, I've tried that, I've tried that, I've tried, I haven't tried that, I'll grab that one. And, uh, and, you know, we've been, we've been a victim of our own success uh, to a significant amount. I mean, I spent a large part of my career in this industry helping break down those barriers for people. You know, we built three different trade associations. We've, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my time traveling around the country uh, meeting with people and trying to build a, an industry that we could all sell into that, to make it easier for the bureaucrats to be able to process our paperwork and understand the business that we were able to, that, that we're, we're trying to run, uh, to have banks be able to finance us. Uh, and go figure, we were successful. And now uh, part of that success is that uh, we've got 
you know, that huge, they call long tail in the industry uh, is a really uh, fascinating dynamic. We cut our league at 200 beers. And I think we get a call every week saying, hey, why isn't this beer in? Because they don't sell enough in, in the stores to have a consistent number. <laughs> so a lot of, you know, there's 1,100 beers we have to kind of disqualify just because they just don't have a, a stable week-to-week sale. You know, we have to have a stable group of, it's amazing just Mike and I did not grow up in this industry and we're learning about new beers every day. So you reinforced what, what, I, what I was struggling with is I don't know if I'm ever going to get my hands around from a knowledge standpoint because it just seems like every, every week there's, there's something else going on. Yeah, at some point, um, you know, we believe that people will figure out that their, their trusted brands are what they're going to come back to. But, um, you know, and, and the pandemic has, has helped accelerate that, quite frankly. But they still, you know, there's still a marketplace for all those small breweries. And, you know, in order for me, my beer to, to get on tap at a restaurant or bar, somebody else's beer has to come off. In order for me to get my beer on the shelf in the grocery store, someone else's beer has to come out. Yeah. So it, you know, that that is the dynamic that that we deal with now. It's a highly competitive industry, and even though we can all be friends, that competition, uh, you know, is absolutely necessary for us to to be able to succeed. It's interesting. One of the other dynamics that's come out of all this, if you got 8,500 breweries and each of those breweries may have over time 50 to 100 different brands that they have, they're producing currently or they have within a reasonable period of time. One of the things that we're dealing with is that trademark issues. I mean, how many brand names are there out there you know, how many words are there in the dictionary that you can draw from to name a beer when eight other breweries have already used that name? You know, and then you get a phone call from somebody saying, hey, I'm not sure if you're aware, but, and we have to do that too. We have to call these, you know, we're a big guy and we don't want to be a bully, but you got to protect our intellectual property like everyone else. So we try to be nice and say, you know, we'll give you time to run out your packaging material or whatever, but you can't use that name. Want to fight about it? We will, but, you know, you, you still can't use it. Yeah, that's something that when we first started the league, I was kid Mike that I still struggle with the, with, the, with the naming conventions of the beers. And I didn't understand it at first because I said some of these beer names violate any kind of uh, Kotler marketing book about, you know, uh, something easy to remember, easy to say, kind of rolls off the lips easy. You know, some of these things are very long and don't seem to make a lot of sense. And then it was explained to me oh, they have to do that because it has to be something that someone hasn't thought of before. And I was like, oh. Honestly, when you're a a niche product in a niche market, uh, in a niche industry, there are certain segments of the consumer that's looking for those niche brands and, and looking for some of those quirky, unique offerings. They're more attractive to that consumer. And I don't know how big, how big a part of the marketplace that consumer represents, but they are there. And for the really tiny breweries, you know, there's a connection that, that, that gets made with those consumers. It does seem to work. 
some of the crazy names anyway. You know? Yeah, I think it gets a little confusing at retail. You know, I've spent my whole life in retail. Knowing that the product is in that store and that I want to go buy it, the labeling, I love the art. I love the names. But I think as a consumer, not knowing what that, and that's one of the things we're trying to do in the league is, is make sure people know what these products look like, because it is a little challenging if going into a Total Wine and More and looking for a specific beer, even they classify it by maybe area of the country and type of beer. It's, it's, it's still difficult to find that one beer you're looking for based on, based on that. See, we don't want them to classify it like that. We, we think brands matter and we want our brands together and you know we don't want them classifying them by style like they do in the wine business or you know by region of the country because that doesn't uh, allow us to to build our brand in a way that helps scale uh, our production and you know a lot of these little tiny breweries they want to grow but you know understanding the value of scale isn't necessarily part of their agenda at this stage of their growth there is an artisan element to this in a lot of these smaller uh they almost they're they're specifically trying to be maybe small and unique almost uh in some in some of these areas seeing craft beer in a post-covid world what what do you what are you thinking about or what are you focused on we're continuing to focus on how we connect with that consumer and the consumer is is moving pretty rapidly and you know how many of the uh, purchasing uh, trends that have emerged during COVID. Uh, pantry loading is just one of them. How many of those are going to continue? What are, how rapidly, I mean, there's certain people that are going to, as soon as they sound the all clear, they're going to want to go to their, their neighborhood bar or their favorite restaurant and really enjoy that. But there is a segment of the population that isn't going to want to go out. They're not going to be ready to take up those old uh, patterns again. How that dynamic plays out, I think, is going to be important. Quite frankly, how many businesses survive? Out of these crises comes opportunity, and unfortunately, some of that opportunity comes at the expense of businesses that, that, that don't survive. That all remains to be seen. You know, we're just trying to do the best we can to make sure that Number one, we survive. And that number two, we're, we're able to take care of our people the best we can. But then after that, we want to make sure that we continue to build our brands in a way that the consumer values as much as we possibly can. There tends to be some trends into the seltzer, other things within craft. Is there anything there that's lighting you up to say, okay, this is, I mean, this is clearly a huge industry now, something that until COVID was still on a trajectory. You know, we were joking on a podcast not too long ago. I want to have that first beer festival after this is all over because there's going to be like a quarter of a million people at that thing. You know, it's going to be pretty crowded. What do you see out there that excites you in the industry? The whole seltzer thing is interesting. It's not a place we're playing uh, right now. I'm quite interested, uh, honestly, in the in the non-alc uh, category. I think there's there's room in America for a healthy uh, non-alcoholic beer category. Call it nominal alcoholic beer category where you're talking in the two to three percent alcohol range, I think could could be part of that as well. Because I think there are a lot of people that love drinking beer. They just don't want 
necessarily all the effects of the alcohol that come along with it. You know, at the same time, Imperial IPAs, you know, we have one that's, that's just roaring uh, called Royal Fresh that uh, is 9% alcohol. I, I think we're still trying to understand where the consumer is going as more and more consumers are, are being attracted to this category of the industry. Packaging, pack types, obviously cans are all the rage right now. Kind of pack type is gonna be, there isn't enough room for everybody to have a 15 pack or a 20 pack or something like that on the store shelves. What's the consumer going to go for next? They seem to be going for larger 12 pack size can packages, tall cans, short cans, skinny cans, fat cans, uh, it's all cans right now. How about Gary? The um, you know the offering the seasonal or variety packs versus you know that six or twelve pack of, of of a single brand. Is that is that an opportunity? Is it just challenging from a manufacturing perspective? Well, it's all of those things. Um, it's challenging from a manufacturing perspective. Our variety packs are. From a business standpoint, the most expensive pack we sell because they all have to, we don't have the equipment to be able to manufacture four different beers at one time and have them all come together in a single package. We have to put them in a box, then we do, and we send them to a company, put them in a truck, send them to a company that takes them out of that box by hand and puts them in the individual uh, variety pack boxes. So it's a very expensive process to begin with. but the consumer still likes that variety and what drives them to purchase that product, whether it's the packaging, the, the beers inside the product, what kind of beers, what kind of variety do they want? Obviously, IPAs are all the rage. Breweries have put out variety packs of all IPAs. So you got four different IPAs. You know, that's fine. I think variety packs of cans just beginning to find their way into the marketplace. And obviously with the popularity of of cans, uh, I think you can expect those to do very well because people really enjoy the variety or that they're just sampling, you know, kind of a la the discussion we had earlier about the long tail and people just want a little bit, they just want to try a little of a whole bunch of different beers and which a, a variety pack is maybe a good choice for them. Uh, but you know, that's where the marketplace appears to still be sorting that out. We really appreciate you being on the podcast today. There are, we're on hiatus from the, the beer league right now that we're in between seasons, but we do have two of your beers, the Deschutes fresh squeezed IPA and Deschutes little squeezy juicy ale, both as part of the craft beer league. We really appreciate you being part of the podcast. We know you're very busy and have a, a tremendous amount of challenges going on, but it's our most popular and most listened to podcasts are those from founders that have really started just like you have with an idea and grown into a significant business entity, which you had. It, the, that journey and that odyssey is, is, is something um, uh, pretty amazing to be a part of. It's been quite a ride and quite an experience for me. I mean, I, I say over and over again, you know, everybody has to work hard at something most of their lives. I can't think of very many things I'd rather work hard at than this. And the people I get to work with, the consumers I get to meet, I mean, it, it, it's been a, a special experience for me.
Um, and I see it just looking at the whole industry just right there in Bend, Oregon. And, uh, you know, and I can only imagine what it was like, you know, back in 1988, but it looks like it's something you helped establish. That's, that's definitely something to be proud of. It's been quite a ride. Uh, I'm proud of all of it. Now, if we can just get through this pandemic, get the vaccine out there, maybe we can actually get back to some form of normalcy here before too long. Again, thank you for being part of the podcast. This was a fascinating discussion as to how you started and some of the things you're seeing out in the industry. Um, as we start to ramp up the next season, we'll send you an invite. The way it works is you can either join an open league or you, be, you can start your own league and invite people to it. So you can have a kind of a closed league of your friends and family uh, or just a Deschutes family, that type of thing. Probably we're looking like the second week in January of kicking that off. We really appreciate you being a part of this, having your beers in the league. It's, they're, they're fun to have part of it. Really appreciate you taking the time today. To talk to us about what it's been like to, to start something from scratch like you have. Well, it's been great. I've enjoyed it. It's been a great, great conversation. And uh, what we'll do is, Gary, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And have a great holiday. Have a great holiday season. Have a a wonderful holiday season and uh, stay safe. Awesome. Thank you. Take care.